Hey, y'all. We have a new giveaway this week. Thanks to our partner, Beta, we're giving away the Skylight Touchscreen Photo Frame. With the Skylight, you can email photos directly to the picture frame from anywhere at any time, and the photos show up instantly. Think of it as like the modern digital photo frame. You can upload, email, share it with friends, and they can also upload directly. And then you guys can watch the sweet, sweet memories roll in together. The Skylight retails for $159, and you can actually go and try them out at any beta store around the country or learn more at skylightframe.com. Skylight is so easy to use and has 100% satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. Use discount code MISSION for $10 off at beta.com, B-8-T-A dot C-O-M, or sign up for our giveaway at mission.org slash giveaway. Welcome to Mission Daily. Today, Ian is joined by Susan Standiford, Chief Technology Officer of Inca Group, the strategic partner in the IKEA franchise system operating IKEA retail in 30 countries. Prior to her current role, Susan served as VP of Technology at Disney Interactive and VP of Technology at Travelocity. On this episode, Ian and Susan discuss how Susan first became interested in technology, what her day-to-day looks like as CTO of Inco Group, and the role of AR and VR in changing how people shop. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at mission.org. And we have on the other line, on the other side of the pond, Susan, how's it going? Oh, how's it going? Ah, I swear I didn't hear you there. Um, it must be a very long distance on the other side of the pond. It's really good. Actually, it's a beautiful day here in London. Uh, we're we're uh, keeping cool and uh, and keeping things interesting. Tons of stuff to get into. But before all of that, how did you get into technology in the first place? Dun, dun, dun. The most important question of all. Um, so uh, in the words of Lady Gaga, I was born this way. <laughs> It's totally true. Actually, I have both nature and nurture. Uh, I had grew up with, with two amazing parents. My father, who was a historian and journalist, um, taught me to be uh, amazingly curious about things. But my mom, um, physicist, scientist, mathematician, uh, everything in our world was about growing up uh, around interesting curiosities and curious problems. And my sister and I grew up in a, in a computer lab most of our time. And uh, that was just the the way that we were raised and um, that innate curiosity pretty much plugs you into technology every step of your life. So that's my world. And so flash forward to you being CTO, what does that look like at IKEA Group? Yeah, so uh, I mean, CT, it's a great question around what does a CTO mean in general? Um, and uh, for, for me at IKEA, it's really interesting. It's a new role for IKEA and for Inca Group. Um, and it is both around setting the technology strategy, the technology and product technology strategy to support our digital strategy, which supports our company strategy. Um, but then also, you know, how do we think about the IKEA world, both internally and externally? So because it's a new role, it's setting up whole new organizations, uh, technical strategies and innovations. Um, but it also has a pretty massive place in uh, the overall innovation for, you know, our IKEA ways of doing things. So it's, um, it's an interesting combination. Does your role fit neatly into a box that you can then take home and assemble yourself? <laughs> 
Um, I don't think there's any CTO job that, that, that fits neatly into any box on assembly. For, for me, because it's a, new, uh, it's a new position, the entire digital group is new at IKEA. It's part of a, a massive transformation that we're doing at the company. Um, and so it's bringing whole new ways of doing things together. So driving a product mindset and a technology innovation mindset uh, is something that is is an extension of the IKEA innovation mindset, but is new in the digital sense. So there's definitely some assembly required, uh, and not all of the instructions came with the uh, with the uh, in the manual, as it were. Yeah, no, it's a perfect analogy for kind of the current CIO CTO role of. How much employee experience do you own? How much customer experience do you own? Um, and working at a company like IKEA, where so much thought has gone into the customer experience, you know, that building that everybody has been, I'm sure, you know, the vast majority of our listeners um, have been into an IKEA and walking through this entire experience that's like personally, or it's curated for each person to be able to kind of go through this thing. Do you feel like there is some amount of kind of pressure to build the same type of like employee experience? Like how do, how do you think about that stuff? And then I'm curious to what the, you know, chief digital officer role, how that plays into, you know, what you're building kind of internally and externally. Yeah, I, it's, um, it's really amazing. So you mentioned the, the, the history of Ikea, sort of the, the legacy that is the Ikea brand and 75, 76 years of Ikea is amazing. And we've always, as a company, been on the forefront of innovation, right? Was the first to really think about home furnishing in the way that it did, the way it thought about design, the way that we thought about um, packaging and the supply chain. Um, very interesting legacy of innovation and, and drive for consumers and products, right? Changed the way that the retail experience worked. Um, change, you know, thought about things like the planet very early on and did things like invested in old growth forests and wind farms. I mean, there's some pretty amazing innovation that happens. And then for the us and the digital transformation and the technology transformation is about not turning us into, you know, the, a technology company. We're not changing our, our core values. We're still trying to you know, generate our mission, which is to create a better everyday life for the many people. So bring, bring product to, to people um, wherever they are in their life and their in their position in life, but but not to become that sort of like front foot technology company. But how do you take technology, digital capabilities, modern ways of thinking about tech in that space, and how do you empower all of those good things that are IKEA? And if you think about it as what I would consider a weapon of good, right? There's an incredible opportunity here to to amplify. Uh, significantly amplify the way we're able to meet our customers where they are. That's the way I think about it. And, you know, that entire digital mission is around not just creating a, an e-commerce channel, that's table stakes, right? The, 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 the point here is to actually empower everything. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it's something that, um, you know, we had the CTO Stitch Fix, um, Kathy Polinsky, uh, on the yes. show about 20 episodes ago or so. And, um, and it was, it was interesting in our, in our prep for this that uh, Hillary, our amazing producer, and I did, we're looking at this idea of like a digital first brand that's changing the way that people, you know, try on yep. clothes where you have Ikea, which is a truly a place where you, you want to be in person. You want to see the 
mirror in the showroom. By the way, I see IKEA now that now that I've been to IKEA a bunch of times, I see IKEA stuff everywhere. I'm like, it's like the matrix for me. Um, I was looking at houses this weekend and I saw there was like five different there was a different IKEA mirror in every single staging room that we saw. It was, it was pretty funny. Um but I think that, you know, knowing that you have to be kind of like in that space and that the technology needs to extend the person's ability to shop you know, in person is a very different experience. Like you, you, yes, you could buy stuff online and I'm sure, you know, we, we can get into that a little bit. Um, but I'm curious how you kind of bridge that gap between the online experience versus, uh, the offline experience. Yeah, I think, um, if you see the way that, that, uh, and forgive me if I, if I go on a little bit about this, but e-commerce, you know, the whole digital e-commerce world has changed so much in the last 20 years, right? It, it, first, it was just selling anything online. Then it was getting an endless shelf or an extended catalog online. Then it was being able to put a price of anything online. And now it's about how do I get, you know, really, do I take merchandising? So retailers who used to think about putting product on a shelf in a physical store, getting the right product at the right shelf at the right price at the right time. How do I take that merchandising and I actually bring that forward um, directly to the consumer, which means how do I visualize it? How do I, how do I taste it, smell it, touch it, whatever those things are, whether that's virtually or, or physically. And then how do I actually get it to you in a, in a package that's meaningful? That's, that's, I think the new battlefield for the consumer and, and in that space and furniture fashion was where things started to go maybe five or six years ago uh, down that path of saying, how are we going to actually innovate in that space? And I think furniture is, is one of those home furnishings, is even a step further. It's harder. It's it's more complicated. There are fewer purchases. There are bigger, bulkier items. How does that fit in your room? How do you think about that in terms of your design and style? Those are really interesting, complicated, difficult problems to solve that consumers don't realize how complicated and hard they are to solve. And then what about kind of that employee productivity piece? How do you internally, like? and, and I guess maybe taking a step back, like what does technology look like at IKEA group, are you structured with, you know, IT in one place and um, product in one place, like building applications? Like what, what, what does it kind of look like? Yeah, well, we, the, the structure that we've, we've landed on is product development teams, right? So that we have um, product leads, tech leads, uh, UX, UI, and, and data as part of that. So data is a core component. So of what we're trying to do, and, and we have years and years and all kinds of wonderful data to bring forward. So we think those are sort of the four pillars of, of, a, of a self-contained team. Uh, and we are lined up around capability areas for the company. So they, and they range from customer touch points that are customer touch points that are digital and online to customer touch points that are physical and in the store. Um, and we try and, you know, essentially bridge those gaps because customers, whether they're walking through a store, whether they're looking online, want to have a great experience and might and might float back and forth between the physical and the virtual very simply and very easily and want that to be a simple ex- a journey for them, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. That makes sense. Um, do you think that as retail continues to evolve that, and as the customer experience in retail really continues to evolve, that, you know, technologies like, you know, AR and VR and all those sort of things um, are going to be able to enhance what this kind of current amazing, you know, experience of, you know, that, that classic iconic Ikea experience would, would be like. Yeah. I mean, the short answer is yes. And they, and, and in fact, they already are. 
we had a booth actually excitingly we were at, uh, at Google next and we did an IKEA booth there um, trying to show off a new app that we have looking at uh, object detection tracking and pulling the entire catalog in um, and it was super uh, popular, maybe one of the most popular booths on the floor there because people wanted to come in and see their Ikea lamp and they wanted to actually play and touch these things and, and discover new objects and discover those things. So you're seeing them in, in gamification of these things. You're seeing everybody um, in, in, I think, in most forms of home furnishing retail trying to find a way to, to make that visualization real and to simplify the experience for the consumer. And you're, you're absolutely seeing that now. And I think it's only going to get more and more. So I, I spend, um, if you don't mind me uh, extrapolating a bit, I spend a lot of time um, working with startups and scale-ups and incubators and accelerators. And that's probably one of the most common ideas and, and sort of functional areas that I see is people trying to figure out how to take the AR, VR, MR world, the mixed reality world as well, and turn that uh, or change that from essentially a solution looking for a problem into a practical reality. And you're seeing a lot of really interesting stuff starting to come up right now. And there's a complexity in, in not just in, in 3d objects, but real 3d objects um, in space and then, and making them interact with other 3d objects. Uh, and, and that is going to get better and better uh, with technology and with better compute power, essentially. Yeah. I, I, I want to get into that in a second. So we'll, we'll come back to the startup piece because, you know, you're an active mentor at, at tech stars and, and a bunch of other places. Um, I did want to, to go back to the one thing about those kind of, you know, workspaces around Ikea because, um, 365 stores, 30 markets, absolutely huge. And the idea that Ikea furniture has been a part of so many people's lives already, that the fact that you could, be able to, you know, have that application on your phone that you scan your house and say, oh, that's what that mirror would look like. Oh, that's what that shelf, um, you know, or chest of drawers would look like or whatever it is, is obviously, you know, feels um, feels like that could be game changing, especially when you look at like, hey, I don't have to measure stuff, you know, it's just going to tell me what fits. Um, but on the other side of that, with that type of capacity, there would need to be like a ramp in your team working on those type of applications, working on things like that. Um, do you find that from the employee employee experience, how do you empower folks on your team to continue to innovate? So um, lots, lots of different ways to answer that question. Um, One, one is that um, we're super strong on looking at sort of outcome and results and what's amazing at IKEA is that is that we, we do recognize and live by that value we talked about earlier, which is creating a better everyday life for the many people. And and so there's this this constant push to try and figure out how do we actually draw draw that experience closer to our consumers. So we're not just sitting and you know creating something in a lab, but we're actually testing things out in stores. Um, we have incredible stores where people want to spend time with us. Uh, you know, on our store regional managers. So that innovation in that drive will will spend time for example we've got um, a co-worker um, a co-worker app team that is out you know looking at 3d objects thinking about how do I take a 3d visualization of an object in a store 
for a coworker. So it's the same kind of concept where I'm visualizing a chair in my house. Would that chair look good? Would that not look good? But now taking that and applying that visualization in the store where I do an object detection tracking, I identify that object. I can now look and see whether I have it um, in stock, where it is, what it looks like, whether I have it in multiple colors, whether it's in another store. So if you think about the, the application of that, just that simple technology, which is how do I identify objects in space? And now um, I can actually take that and apply it to multiple uh, customer teams. And because we're organized around those capability areas of where we touch the customer, our meeting points for customers, we can start to experiment and explore in innovations around all of those areas. So then when you are looking in the startup community, like, I guess, why are you so involved in the startup community and things like, you know, accelerators and tech stars and stuff like that? Um, Obviously, you know, I'm sure part of it is, is that it's fun. Uh, but is there kind of a business reason why you're so, uh, you know, involved in these, in these organizations? You know, it, it, for me, it, 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 it is fun and it's delightful. So, um, I, I've been in the industry for over 20 years. I've done a lot of different things. I started off as a data nerd and a tech nerd and a, and a programmer. I, and I did all of these incredible things. I've worked for incredible companies. I've succeeded and failed and done lots of different things, um, and I say, I say that not because I'm, I'm bragging about what I've done, but, but what I have found is that I love mentoring and coaching. And when I started working and doing mentoring and coaching for startups and incubators and accelerators, um, I loved it. I loved it. It was fun. Yes, it was fun. There are lots of great ideas and I loved the interaction, but it was super rewarding for me because I felt like I was able to give uh, and I give as much as I get. Um, so I certainly have great ideas and I think about things and I love sparring with folks, but I absolutely adore being able to work with young companies, you know, newly minted CTOs and CEOs who have great ideas. I love ideating around products and ideas. And I just find that incredibly fresh and invigorating and energetic for me. So I, I that, that's really, you could, maybe it summarizes as fun, like you said. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's just so hard to stay up to date on technology if you're mm. not close to the startup ecosystem. You know, obviously, if, if, if you feel different, you could push back. But, you know, one of the reasons, um, you know, that we're we're in Silicon Valley and, and we, we talk to a lot of startups is just and why we have so many on the show, you know, from time to time is that especially when you get to a certain stage of company that you're really getting cutting edge stuff, uh, when they have the opportunity, when, you know, once they're past kind of that formation stage and they're actually putting a product in the market, mm. um, especially with hardware, like hardware is just so difficult. You know, like when we had the, the CTO drone deploy on here, like, you know, truly drone deploy is going to change and drones are going to change like the landscape of our world. It's an important thing to bring that to CTOs, right? Like we, we want CIOs and CTOs to be able to know of those type of things, and so we want to be able to share that. And if if you're, you know, not in a market where you have those type of those, you know, startup pitch competitions and different sort of stuff every day to look at, it's it's just a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah, I I I agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, there are lots of different ways that you can sort of stay on top of new technologies. Um there and there are lots of them and probably tried and true from various blogs and magazines and, and working with your teams. But I do think that the startup ecosystem gives you a, a lens 
to innovation uh, that is super unique. Um, and you do need to do it more than once. You need to kind of get involved and a little bit entrenched or, you know, submerged into it because what you'll find the first time I went, I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. And that's a great idea. Oh, what a good idea that one is. I mean, like, they're all great ideas, right? And, and you have to see enough of them um, and get enough of an idea to start to differentiate which ones of those are, are truly um, ideas that are different and differentiated. Yeah. Um, it's that judgment that comes from a little bit more uh, interaction than just a single interaction. It's a great point. And I think that when, especially when you go to like, you know, 500 startups or YC demo day or something like that, like these have been vetted so many times at that point and they're practicing their pitch, right? Like the whole point is to be good at pitching. So, you know, you're seeing kind of the cream of the crop at that point anyway. So of course it all sounds good. Um, but if you're not kind of in the, in the weeds, you know, one of the, one of the CIOs that we had on here, has a really robust program where they they look at they do I, I think it's like a hackathon on specific problems within their company every year. Uh, I forget who it was off the top of my head, and uh, and they usually end up you know purchasing from at least one of those companies every year. And mm. he's like you know he was like the flexibility that you get from working with an early stage startup when you're their biggest customer, like they can really build stuff that's pretty customary to you, and it's a win win because they need. Uh, they need the revenue and they need the, you know, product feedback and refinement. Yes. Yeah. And, and in fact, and then there's pluses and minuses to that, right? There, it, it cuts on both sides, right? You can also get stuck and, and maybe miss out on an innovative idea if you could actually think more broadly. But, but yes, super selfishly, that's exactly right. I mean, we've got an investment group that, that spends time with that. And we have a, a, I have an active interaction with that group all the time. Sometimes we'll vet companies together, um, and, and really you look for things that are, are interesting, innovative people that can grow with you or, you know, killer ideas that are, that are out there. Most of the time you're finding, I find anyways, you've got killer teams with some pretty good ideas and it's whether or not the companies will be able to, to listen and interact and pivot, right. As, as things, as things evolve very quickly in, in, in the technology space that they're in. So a number of years back, do you worked as VP of technology and CTO for Disney online. Um, recently in the news, Disney is, is all over the news for the fact that they're going to be launching their, um, their streaming service, which will by all accounts truly, uh, probably break a lot of records in terms of how many people buy it. Uh, I don't see anyone with a child between the age of, of two and 10, not, not forking up the money. Um, were there things back then that you were thinking about of how to get, you know, Disney in front of people in a digital first way? I'm, I'm so curious to that. Yeah, Disney was very interesting back then. So um, I think my time there was as it was trying to, to figure that out. I think um, if you look at the history of Disney, um, the sort of the big innovation around content, uh, the first one outside of the obvious animation studios, um, but was around the Disney Channel. Right? Mm -hmm. And that was originally going to be just a, a, a display, if you will, for old Disney content. And it, the innovation there was actually saying, hey, we should be driving new content and creating new content. And that was um, something that was big and that, you know, broke all records, et cetera, et cetera. And I think when, when I was at Disney, it was very much in the space of trying to figure out how do we get the digital side of Disney away from just sort of a, a market display, advertising display, conduit to all of our other content, and can we actually turn it into a content generation or an audience generation in and of itself? 
And I tell you what, it's, it's a complicated place to be, and particularly at a company like that where, where content is owned by the various parts of the company, the Disney Channel, ABC, ESPN, uh, Animation Studio, those kinds of things, um, to, to kind of create a whole new content generation arm. So that, that streaming service has been in the play uh, and trying to be marketed and put together for a while, and I'm excited to see that they've, they've put it together. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. Do you think, and, and, and before that you were um, VP of technology at Travelocity, um, a, a, another extremely, you know, interesting problem and in slice in time where there just, there just wasn't really that at that time, like the capacity for people to, you know, find um, travel experiences in that kind of way, you know, flash forward to now, I mean, you couldn't even, I guess not just like competition, but just the amount of things that are out there that help people find travel experiences is completely different. Um, did you kind of feel like your time at Travelocity seeing that type of scale and then at, at Disney prepared you for uh, kind of where you are now without knowing about it? Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, my journey has been really phenomenal. And I think about, you know, if I kind of step backwards from every job, it, 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 it was almost like a, a an incredible obvious next step, you know, looking backwards, right? And I think um, when I when I left Disney, I went to a place called Rue La La. It was a combination, it was a flash sale site. We would do essentially 50 pop-up stores every day. Wow. We'd open up 50 stores, we'd close 50 stores. So it was retail and e-commerce, but on steroids, right? In a very different scale. And it was about drama and uh, excitement and how do you display a brand in a really lovely way right? When you're selling really at the, at fundamentally discount, discounted um, luxury merchandise. And for me, I would always say we would, we would generate a denial of service attack on ourselves every day. We'd get everybody all excited and we'd send out an email saying the store would open at 11 for whatever famous, wonderful, lovely brand was there. And you would, everyone would rush to the site. You'd get an incredible spike of traffic. You had to have some pretty interesting systems, by the way, to, to support that. And, uh, and then people would come and they'd be delighted. And if you think about that, that is retail meets e-commerce meets content and entertainment, which is Oracle, uh, Travelocity, and Disney kind of combined into this lovely little package, right? So, yes, yeah, so I think each one of these, these positions has kind of um, uh, set me up, probably unknowingly, but, it, but very interestingly to do the next thing that I've ended up doing. Yeah, is there is there kind of a piece of advice for, you know, folks that are kind of in that same stage as the CIO or CTO or CDO that are, you know, kind of looking for a position that might not seem like it, you know, directly relates experience-wise to the thing that they want to do down the road? I, yeah, I think there are, at a CDO, CTO, sort of that level, I would say, you know, um, you know, figure out what it is that delights you. For me, I'm, I love solving problems. I love pro solving problems at bigger and bigger scale. I love creating and building things. So I always kind of look for those things. If that's going to make me happy, then, then that's interesting. The other thing I would say, even if you maybe aren't quite to that CTO level, for me, when I was, when I was sort of learning and, you know, cutting my teeth as an engineer and, you know, finding that I had ambition to do this, um, I had an incredible mentor who, you know, asked me lots of obnoxious and difficult questions about what, why did I want to be a CTO? What was so interesting about that? And really made me think about it um, and realize, you know, sort of the things that I like to do, the problem solving, solving problems at scale and, you know, in, that people problems are as interesting as, as technical problems, et cetera, et cetera. But also made me realize that lateral 
moves, understanding the bigger problems, understanding the broader context, um, end-to-end business problems, um, that lateral moves could be just as fruitful for your end career as any kind of upward move. So that would be my, my, my tiny little bit of advice, which is don't think a lateral move is necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's the best thing. Talk me through your thought process when you were vetting and looking at the Ikea role and like once you got it, how you went into it, what was your mindset? Um, Did you have like a 90 day plan? Like what did that stuff look like? I'll start with, with what attracted me to it. And then, um, and then we can talk about sort of how I, how I dug in once I got there. But um, Ikea was really interesting. I I was actually going to probably just do some board work. Um, I was really digging. Sounds boring. <laughs> board, not the boring work, but the board, the, the uh, sitting on boards and, and doing advising for companies because I was really, really liking the, the startup community. Um, and I got, uh, I got a call to, to talk about Ikea. And of course it's Ikea. So it's really interesting. It's beloved and it's lovely and it's, you know, it's blue and gold and it's meatballs and it's, you know, all kinds of goodness there. Right. So you talk to them and you start to realize that the company is amazing, right? It's it's um it's got an incredible ethos around the mission to to kind of create. Well, the mission is to create a better everyday life for the many people. So to bring product to people where they are, where how, no matter how thin their wallet or how big their dreams, um, and that they're a values based company, which a lot of companies will say, but but IKEA truly lives it, right? It's a very humanist approach to to management and leadership. It's a democratic design, and it's thoroughly lived through and through for the company. And so every time you start talking to people at Ikea, you just, you just realize what an incredible heart and ethos the company has. So that really attracted me. The drive and the commitment to innovation from the board all the way through executive leadership, all the way across the company was also important. If you're going to do a transformation, make sure that you've got you know, sort of the intellectual and, and emotional mindset of the company behind you. And then you know, the drive to build and innovate, the history, the legacy of that was incredible. And then finally, the assets that the company has from, as I said, the wind farms and the old growth forest to the supply chain thinking to, to the IKEA family companies that design and manufacture products. I mean, they're just an incredible number of assets that make it you able to actually innovate. So you can have great ideas and there's this incredible, powerful network of happiness behind you that helps you make that happen. So that that was the, the, the delightful little lure um, that, uh, that lured me into the company, which was amazing. Um, as far as, you know, what was the goal coming in and how did I think about it? I, you know, I, I, have, I have been in a number of different companies and done a lot of different transformation work. Um, and I always come in with that, at least the concept of a 100-day plan, whether it's you know, 100 days or 90 or it's six months or whatever it is. So each company is a little bit different. But but you kind of break the problem down into, you know, spending about a third of the time thinking about listening, just listening to what's going on. Does, does the, the goals of the company meet with the people? Do you have the right people process and technology in place? Where are the problems? What's going on? So you just do a, a lot of uh, sponge-like behaviors, just, you know, absorbing all this kind of stuff. And then you spend another third of your time sort of formulating your mind or, you know, are you prioritizing and triaging the things the right way? What are ways that you could actually attack some of these um, either problems or enhance or amplify some of the strengths that you have? 
Um, and then you spend the next time really kind of putting that plan to action. So how would you think about it? If you need to hire people or if you need to, you know, do some org design or if you need to train something or think about a new tech or, or whatever it is you need to do, kind of mobilizing around that so that you can, you can come out of that initial period, you know, with a, a, a game plan uh, that you're able to publish and broadcast and, and get people behind. So that's the way I thought about it. We talk a lot about digital transformation and kind of like where people are on like a roadmap of this. And it's kind of silly because it's like kind of everything is ongoing, right? Like constant, constant improvement sort of a thing. Um, do you feel like, like how do you view kind of constant innovation or building a culture of innovation versus kind of the like, Hey, we need to be done with something by this time. Um, I, I, well, we'll start with that. I think it's very, very few um, things are sort of like, and, and innovation is done on Tuesday. We have created <laughs> said innovation and, and uh, shop closed, turn off the lights on your way out, right? Um, I, I firmly believe in innovation every day and it's a journey. And the reality is that technology will change. People will change. The world will change all kinds of stuff. And it's your ability to be flexible, uh, fast and flexible and your ability to, to adapt to that. So that's going to allow you to, to more for adapting time. So if you, if you build a, a culture around delivery innovations and then you're done, then, then, then that's a problem that might work for you for the first time, but it won't work for you in perpetuity. So how do you do that? And, and, some of that's with, you can do that stuff with innovation labs and R&D labs. That's part of what you do. And we certainly have one, for example, in our, we have some 3D, some pretty interesting 3D R&D labs and some other things like that at IKEA where we do product innovations. Like how do you think about innovation every day? So, and I, I usually try and think about it in, in, and cut it up in a couple of different ways. One is optimizations. Um, and optimizations are really interesting and they can be very innovative. They're, they're easy things for people to innovate. How do you do things better? Just, you know, perpetually better, constant improvement. Um, there's another one where you look for gaps. So why aren't you doing it this way? If you could do, you know, if you could fill a gap with this functionality or this capability, then you could jump over something or take out, you know, automate something or do things like that. So you find gaps in these things. And then there's a forward looking thing that maybe is a little bit harder to do. Um, if you've got a company that's pretty good at looking in the future and Disney was good at this, I think Ikea is really good at this. This is sort of a little bit longer view looking for those category killers, right? What's going to disrupt you? Um, not just looking for ways to disrupt, but specifically, you know, in two years and three years and two weeks, whatever time period, what's going to disrupt you. Um, and then if you're able to harness that and find a way to disrupt yourself and, and it's a forward looking piece to that, which I think is interesting. What are some of, or one of your projects that you've done in your career that you're most proud of, whether it's a product launch or an implementation or anything like that? Yeah. Um, I've, done, I've done a number of things that are fun. Um, one of them, when I was um, when I was back at Retech, was uh, was something that built out the, the the sexy plumbing. Right, it's not very sexy at all, but plumbing is always fun if you're an engineer. But we built out a multi-threaded architecture that was super important for the company at the time to help us scale and and sell into you know home markets that we had never been able to get into before. That was really really fun. Um, hard and you know heady days um, back in the day. Those were pretty fun. Um, I, I've done some, some really cool stuff with, uh, with warehouse implementations. I always find warehouses to be pretty cool. So if you're in retail and you think, oh, a warehouse, you think, oh, it's conveyor belts and robots and, um, 
and all kinds of fun things like that. And I think there's a real interesting optimization when you look at fulfillment and supply chain stuff, particularly in warehouses, inventory and logistics, that, that, that's pretty cool. And, um, and I think some of the stuff we're doing right now at, um, at Ikea is pretty impressive when you think about how much of the supply chain we have visibility to around customer fulfillment um, and the things that we're doing around getting products to people um, in more interesting and innovative ways. So those are sort of some, some things that have been pretty fun in my, in my lifetime, including some current stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, I look at one of the most exciting things for me as a consumer, but also just like me as a technology lover is how in Ikea's now you have, Hey, do you want this, uh, want this built for you at home? Like, here you go. Um, you know, check out this application, um, you know, download this app and you can do it that way. Like that sort of stuff, which is like, Hey, we're going to let, you know, an army of people who are great at putting stuff together, put this together for you at your house for, you know, essentially a, a nominal fee. Like that sort of stuff is so exciting because it leverages an amazing product and a huge pain point that I think a lot of people, you know, I'm sure every single family has the, has the, like, this is the person who puts together furniture du jour uh, of their family for us. That is, that is my girlfriend. It's definitely not me. There, there is a separation of duty, isn't there? In many families. Exactly. And, and one person gets the Allen wrench for sure. Oh yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think um, if I, if I look at, that space, it's really interesting to see. I, I think the things that IKEA is doing, that the, the companies are a bit IKEA is doing. I mean, we, we purchased TaskRabbit a few years ago, um, and that's an amazing company. Really great guys um, there um, who are doing some pretty interesting things. And it's about that sort of creating an incredibly wonderful gig economy around any number of different things in you know in your world. So having people do some of the things that you want to do. So having IKEA. Um, bringing TaskRabbit into the IKEA family and giving people the ability to do it themselves if they want to or to have somebody else do it for them and any different um, number of permutations in, in that sort of home furnishing set that you want um, is, is a really forward-thinking idea. And I think that's where, the, again, I think that's where the battleground for the consumer is, is around um, not around pricing elasticity now, but sort of convenience elasticity. And you find that that's, that's a change in the demographic of people today where people are uh, not so much interested in the, in the best price, but they're looking at the things that are going to be the most convenient for them. And you see that in the way people shop. You see that in the way that people uh, consume things, the way that they, you know, I, was it Domino's can now deliver a pizza to your car in a traffic jam in LA if you want. So there's <laughs> really interesting things happening and some really weird things. Um, I don't think I'd want a pizza in a traffic jam, but you never know. Uh, back to your question about what's the lure of going to a place like Ikea is not just the intent and the mindset and the drive to do these things, but also the power and the assets to be able to to think forward and to, and to, you know, be forward thinking and to bring these guys in. So I think, I think that whole relationship and how that started again before my time, but, but um, is just amazing. And, and that's just an incredible visionary thing to do, I think. So how do you view mentorship and leadership? You know, you mentor a lot of startups, um, you have a large team. Um, do you have a specific leadership style or, or what does that look like? Uh, it's a good question. I think um, I'm a big fan of situational leadership. I think that's one of the things that you learn as you as you as you get experience as, as a leader in general, um, and sort of acquiring you know tools to put in the tool bag how how to to help shape and guide 
um, there's lots of different things that can um, get added to that. And I, I, I think of myself as a lifelong learner, so I'm constantly looking at new mechanisms and tools to put in the tool bag for situational leadership. Um, but I think if you if you are gonna um, really look at my my general leadership style is is I really focus on inspirational leadership and coaching and mentoring. Um, I think that uh, I'm a big fan of empowering teams, you know, setting goals and outcomes and strategies that we want to that we want to um, accomplish and ways that we want to accomplish them. But but really getting people to to bring their their authentic self and their own capabilities and their great ideas and their own world. You do that by providing that inspiration and a little bit of guiding, and then you put together coaching and, and feedback as much as you possibly can so that you can help guide people in that space and you create a, a situation of trust where you can both listen to feedback but also give feedback and, um, and get people to, um, I think you get people to really accomplish a lot, and, and then they can grow. Uh, and I think that that's super important. But I also I also make sure that when I'm hiring um, or promoting or assembling teams, I, I really look for uh, there are five characteristics or qualities that I look for in leaders. And those leaders aren't necessarily you know people who lead teams. They could be individual contributors. But I think in leader being having leadership qualities or being a leader is is super important no matter where you are in the company and no matter what level you are. But the five qualities that I look for. Um, it's being smart. Um, that's super important. Um, you also get shit done. So there's sort of this real delivery mindset that comes with that, um, that you can fight through ambiguity, so which means you have grit right there. You know, you don't just, you don't just turn around if some, if you come up across a barrier, you're doing that. So those things, smart, um, hungry or delivery focused and grit are, are pretty common. And then the other two that I really care about are you care about making others better. You care about, you know, sort of enabling leadership in other people. And that can be if you're a, a personnel leader that you really are caring about developing leadership traits in others. But if you're an individual contributor, it might be things like you, you document your code well or you're, you love to do lunch and learns or you find ways to make the people around you better and you lift them up. And then the final quality is um, humble leadership or humility, which means to me not just being right all the time, but it's really being curious, spending a lot of time um, with the, with curiosity and then listening to people, looking for feedback, taking that feedback in and giving, giving feedback. Um, but then, you know, obviously just sort of really bringing, you know, checking your ego at the door and trying to do something for the team and, and make us all better. So those are the five that I really care about. Do you have a certain, kind of like way you, you go about that in the hiring process or the questions you're asking or things like that? Yeah, I think, um, I do a lot of, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm insanely curious. So I spend a lot of time asking people questions. So, you know, I look for T-shaped people. I look for people that can be broad and deep. So we ask a lot of questions and, you know, I ask people, you know, how do they go about problems? How do they, you know, tell me about ways that you, you know, that, that you've fallen down. Show me some, some examples of resilience so you can start to dig into some of those resilience categories. And, and the interesting one on making people better is um, you can usually find it in, in how open people are about sharing the goods and the bads of that, of, of what they've done or others, right? So you get into an interesting humility conversation at the same time that you're talking about um, enabling other people to be better. And you get a real sense of ego when you start digging in, into those areas. Um, and it's definitely a conversation. I don't think there's a single question that you ask, but you know, you start to, you know, you start to peel at the, you know, you tick, 
tick away at the edges. You kind of pick around at some of these things and, you know, good behaviors and bad behaviors usually come out. And what's really interesting is if you ask, um, if you ask people about the teams that I've assembled over, you know, over the years, they'll tell you they're really, really diverse. They'll actually wonder how did these all, how did all these people come to be on your team? They seem so different, but they all have those same five qualities, right? They all really are driven to get results done as a team. They care about other people. It's, 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 it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool when you really look for those qualities, I think. What has surprised you most in this role? And, and you could, it doesn't even have to be this role. It could be the last, you know, handful of years. It could be about technology or it could be about something specific. So I'll, I'll stick with the Ikea one. I think there's some relevance to, um, to a lot of the other roles. One, one, one observation, and it's, it's, I guess it's surprising that, you know, we really all have a lot of the same problems, right? We, we might have implemented them in different ways, but, but the patterns are there. There are so many patterns you know, Conway's law lives, which is the, the statement that your, you know, your architecture looks like your organizational design. Um, these things are true. You know, you can see them resiliently across organizations. Um, people uh, trying to sort out problems in different ways, engineering, loving plumbing. There's, there's all kinds of different, different things that are sort of universal, what I'm finding that can be universal constants, but, but certainly constants that are there. Um, I think that's interesting. The, Another observation um, is that that um, the social psychology problems are always harder than the technical problems. Um, transformations, in particular, are about getting people on board and, and sort of organizing ships and getting people to move in movements. And, and that's not done with a, a simple tech solution. That's or even a hard tech solution. It's done with with social psychology and and, and empowering and inspiring people. And then at IKEA, I think the thing that's crazy—it's incredible. I, I've I've worked in a lot of companies that have great values and, and, and um, people come there because of the, the ethos and, and the values. But, but Ikea, I think, is, is really, really unique in how, in how we live our values. And, and uh, I'm, I couldn't be more proud and delighted to be there. I mean, you're preaching the choir. Our company is called Mission uh, for that exact reason. You know, like we only, we only want to work with mission-driven companies. And I think that that matters. Like it, if you don't kind of ground reality in the fact that you're trying to do something that improves uh humanity then it's just easier to get lost it's easier to um to chase things that that don't do that and i think um if your company motto or whatever it is uh don't go towards those things then it's it's just it's a lot more challenging to stay on the course I, I agree. And actually it comes down to attracting and retaining talent too, right? So I think that there's all these things kind of feed into each other. Uh, Dan Pink did that incredible um, book called Drive and, yeah. and it talks about, you know, mission, um, uh, it's purpose, uh, uh, mastery and autonomy. And I, and I do believe that. And, and I think that um, mastery and autonomy are, are, are harder to sort of measure, but you can, you can offer that. You can, you can offer that to talent and, and, and candidates, but purpose, I mean, the purpose uh, magnet is massive. It's imperative that it's not just words on a page that if you live it, if you breathe it, you consume it. Um, and people are attracted to that. That, that magnetism is amazing. Okay. Let's get into the lightning round questions. The lightning round as always is brought to you by our friends at the lightning platform by Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash employee experience 
to learn more about how Salesforce is transforming employee experience, check it out. We love Salesforce platform. You will too. Um, if you're listening, just, just check them out. Click on the link in the show notes. They're awesome. Lightning fast employee experience and lightning round questions coming at you. Susan, are you ready? Yes, sir. I am. Bring them on. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? That's the most fun? Yep. Uh, oh, boy. Um, I, my my uh, turn off my brain app right now is Hue, which is a fun little Hue, uh, color-based game. Um, but uh, probably the most fun is when I'm doing travel planning. So it's uh, it's fun things like Airbnb that make me happy. What is your favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Oh, I just read Bad Blood, um, which was about Theranos, which was, I mean, it was my the best one, but it was certainly occupied my brain. I'm incredible. Um, I'm in the middle of Artemis now, Andy Weir, uh, which is very fun. Um, and then podcasts, I, I uh, probably Gastropod is super fun if you're a foodie. Hmm, that's fun. I haven't checked it out. What about a favorite vacation spot or one day getaway in the London area? Uh, a one day getaway from London? Yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, everything's a two hour flight from London and in Europe, but um, we just went yesterday to the Whitstable Oyster Festival, which was in Whitstable uh, on the coast of Kent, ate a gazillion oysters, which was lovely. And uh, I highly recommend it for a day getaway. That sounds super fun. I might need to check that out. Um, what about a favorite use of AI or chatbots that you've seen recently? Of AI or chatbots that I've seen recently? Um, well, there was a pretty fun Heineken app that would allow you to order Heinekens directly to your seat at a stadium that I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> that's, that's pretty slick. Um, what do you do for fun? Um, I play ukulele for my nieces and nephews and I make up words to songs. It's pretty entertaining for me, at least. They probably think I'm annoying and they call me evil Auntie Susan, which delights me so. Oh, that is hilarious. Um, Does Molly get in on the action? Oh, you know about Molly. Yeah, she is our sweet, wonderful, snarky little dog. um, And she pretty much avoids the ukulele um, whenever she can, but she's a delightful little snark. And and you were a Navy brat, which we have to mention. Um, just w- w- anything from uh, from your Navy uh, Navy bratage that uh, that helped you later on in life. You know, I think uh, I was born in the Philippines. We lived all over the place, um, and so I think uh, I'm I'm a, an odd engineer in that uh, I've got some I've got some pretty good skills for meeting people um, that I think came from from moving around quite a bit. Um, so that was pretty good. What is the thing you're most excited about going forward? I, you know, it's interesting. There's so much here. Um, I'm on an organizational level. I, I just think it's so incredibly cool to build out this organization and, and, and do amazing things. I have to say in the, in the Ikea world, I do think that the customer fulfillment space is like incredibly exciting, right? I think that that is, as I said before, the battleground for the consumer. So finding ways to bring that sort of super unique, incredible IKEA assets to bear um, in solving sort of bringing product to customers in that furniture space is, is just incredibly exciting. I'm super thrilled about it. What is your best advice for a first time CTO? I would say it's not about the tech most of the time. It's about the people. Um, and so if you can find 
people that will speak truth to power and, you know, talk to you straight. I think that that is far more valuable than almost anything because you're not going to be able to personally scale. So if you're a CTO and you're looking to, to figure this out, you're not, you, unless you're a one person company or a two person company, you know, you are, you are not the center of the universe. Your, your job is to get other people um, to, to succeed and scale and have great ideas. And the way that you're going to do that is you're going to create a culture where people will tell you the goods, the bads, and the uglies. You're going to encourage feedback, uh, give feedback, but more importantly, listen to feedback, get feedback, and actually act on it. That's the most important thing I can think of. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? Hmm. I think it's more of a general sense of questions. I, I, I think it's so important as technologists to be um, all about delivering outcomes and values for the business. So I think it's more annoying that, that you only get asked technical questions. So I, I would really like to make sure that people recognize that the, the value that you provide is wrapped up, you know, the technology is there, it's underlying, it's a core capacity, it's, it's a weapon of good, but it, it drives into driving um, the value for the business, right? So how, how do you create, how do you productize um, technology and outcomes, you know, for good? I think that that's a very long-winded, obnoxious way to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been absolutely awesome, Susan. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, we'll have to have you back soon. Any, any final thoughts, anything to plug? Oh, I, 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 well, I'll plug your podcast. I think this is awesome. So thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. This has been a delight. Susan, this has been great. Thanks again. Um, you're awesome. Thanks Ian. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.